0: Well, good evening, folks. Isn't this great we have this fellowship hall to be able to meet and have these kind of things in? This is fantastic. Uh, I am uh, delighted that you were able to make it out here tonight and uh, to hear my good friend Tim Larson to be able to give a, a few lectures uh, about the phenomena of Christmas and the history behind it. And so uh, we're excited to be able to uh, have all of you here tonight to be able to participate. Um, Tim is great on questions. If you have questions, feel free to meet with him afterwards and ask whatever concerns you have, uh, and, and he's, he's just so patient. He's a wonderful person. He's been patient with me all day long. So uh, anyway, I'm going to say a prayer, then I'm going to introduce Tim, and I'm just going to turn things over to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the ability, uh, like I've already mentioned, Lord, for us to be able to gather here in a place like this, Lord, more of an informal setting where we can still discuss the things of you, Uh, but also, Lord, where uh, there's a a little bit of the air of leisure and fellowship, and Lord, we're excited about being able to gather here tonight. We look forward to uh, what we'll be able to do tomorrow, and so, Lord, we just pray that um, you would just allow our hearts to fall in love with the Lord Jesus all the more that, Lord, we would consider his at first advent and his incarnation, and through it, the result of our salvation by what he was able to accomplish on our behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that you be with our brother Tim. I pray, Lord, that you would give him any nerves that he might have, just a, a sense of calmness, knowing that he's among brothers and sisters here, and that through that, Lord, uh, he would uh, just feel confident to share with us uh, the things that he's learned and the studies that you've provided him with. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I had to write some of this down because this is, this is really impressive. Dr. Timothy Larson is the McManus Professor of Christian Thought at Wheaton College. I just realized tonight over dinner you mentioned to me that you had followed Mark Knoll uh, into that particular role. He's an honorary fellow, uh, School of Divinity at University of Edinburgh, an honorary research fellow, School of Theology, Religious Studies, and Islamic Studies at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. He's been a visiting fellow at Trinity College in Cambridge and All Souls College, Oxford, and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a fellow of the Royal Anthropological Institute. You're in our fellowship, Paul, brother, and we can see that you qualify. Um He's also the author and editor of 20 books uh, one that he has very interesting is called crisis and doubt these are about people who seemingly give up their faith uh, at one point but yet return later in life uh, To a biblical understanding of salvation And it's a As we were talking about he said this is a great book For those parents that have prodigals And, and they're wondering is there still hope um, And so I would encourage you to, to pick up a copy Of that uh, when you go But that's all like technical stuff about Tim I thought I would share a few things that I learned About him while I was out running around Huntsville Number one Tim uh, Doesn't know very much about the space program uh, <laughs> But we indoctrinated him At the U.S. Space and Rocket Center today. He also uh, doesn't want to ever get into a Mercury space capsule. Um, Tim has a, a great sense of humor. Uh, he is a lay preacher at his home church. Um, and in fact, he delivers the Advent sermon for his pastor every year. Uh, I asked him, I said, Tim, what would you like me just to share with the people of God in general? And Tim said, Well, the most important things to me, I'm I'm a father of three. I am married to a a beautiful girl from Glasgow, and also uh, that I love the church. And I can't think of anything that we would want at our Christian universities and colleges than a man who loves the church and loves the Lord Jesus. I know that through our conversation today, I've learned that Tim also just loves the gospel, and he loves seeing what the gospel does in other people's lives. So Tim, without further ado, I'm going to turn things over to you, brother. Welcome. Welcome to Providence Baptist Church.
1: Did I make that work? Nope. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm uh, encouraged that you would come out on a Friday night uh, to hear a church history lecture. This, um, uh, my heart is warmed by that for sure. Uh, I, I mainly uh, read because I want to get the claims right, but I will uh, look up occasionally to show my social skills, so it'll work out um, alright. And I need to... <coughs> don't have a lot of slides, but I'll give you something more electricity to look at uh, than me uh, as we go along. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, of God becoming incarnate and entering our world as a baby to live a human life, die on the cross for our sins, and be raised to life again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, Christmas is a time to remember and rejoice over some deeply scriptural themes that are key parts of salvation history as revealed in the Bible. Uh, These are themes announced by the prophets already in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah foresaw that a child would come who would be mighty God in the flesh. Um, I've got got one key passage of scripture. That's why the Bibles are out. I'll tell you when we get there if you want to look that up. But I'm going to go through um, a whole litany of, of scriptures at the beginning here first. This is Isaiah 9. The people walked in darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Another example is a prophecy of Micah, which Uh, foretells that someone from Bethlehem will arise as a ruler, a figure who is not just a newborn like everyone else, but who is really coming out of the realm of the eternal. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, one of you will come to me uh, who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In the New Testament, John's Gospel begins by announcing the good news of the Incarnation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The uh, first two chapters of Matthew's gospel are focused on the story of Christ's birth, including the account of the wise men coming to see the Christ child. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Most beloved of all is the account of Christ's nativity in the first two uh, chapters of Luke's gospel. You might have heard them in the Charlie Brown special. That's how famous they are. (laughs) It includes the account of the announcement to the shepherds, this will be assigned to you, you will find a babe wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Uh, I, I would um, recite, I went to a Christian school growing up, but I would recite the whole of Luke 2 every avid season uh, in the King James Version. So it's very hard for me not to go back to King James when, when, I, when I hear that passage. The, the, the angels were sore afraid in the King James. Um, they're terrified in this version. I mean, they, the, the, the shepherds are. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, we even have what seems to be the lyrics of an early Christian hymn proclaiming the good news of Christ's incarnation and atoning death on the cross. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross." So the story that is celebrated at Christmas is a profoundly biblical one. Is the Christmas holiday itself, however, somehow unbiblical or pagan? Christians celebrated Christmas for well over 1,000 years without such a concern troubling them. We know for sure that the church was celebrating Christmas by around 350 AD, and as there are few church records from before then that have survived, we can only wonder how much earlier the practice might have started. In the 16th century, however, some Protestants were concerned enough to give up on Christmas altogether, especially those from the Reformed and Anabaptist wings of the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin was the Grinch who stole Christmas. In the 17th century, pastors in Calvinist Scotland would go door to door throughout their parish on December 25th, making sure that nobody was having a good time. In America, the Puritan governor of the Plymouth Colony, William Bradford, tried to forbid anyone, even those who were self-employed, from taking a day off work on December 25th. This concern about Christmas being unbiblical continued for around three centuries that is starting in the early 16th century and going to the early 19th century, before even most of those very same Protestant groups, including Presbyterians, Baptists, and Congregationalists, changed their minds again and decided that celebrating Christmas was a Christian thing to do after all. Nevertheless, because we still have the cultural memory of those three centuries, when certain prominent Protestant groups rejected Christmas, some people are still a little bit uneasy wondering if those reformers and Puritans were right in the rejection of the holiday and the current practice might be wrong after all. The unbiblical and the pagan criticisms are intertwined in various ways, which means that they cannot be totally separated. But I will mainly focus on the unbiblical one first and then address the pagan one. So we'll start with the unbiblical. The unbiblical charge rests on two points. The first reason is that the Bible does not tell us the date of Jesus's birthday. In other words, although scripture gives us an account of Jesus' birth, December 25th is not a date that for it given in scripture. The second reason is that nowhere in the Bible are Christians commanded to celebrate Christ's birth, nor is there an example of or reference to the church doing so anywhere in the New Testament. Those objections are only valid, however, if one takes a rather strict view of what is called in formal theology, the regulative principle. The regulative principle asserts that anything that does not have explicit warrant in the New Testament is prohibited in Christian worship. Many Protestant groups have never accepted the regulative principle as a valid principle at all. For those who do, there then is a question of how strictly to apply it. The strictest version includes the claim that it is wrong to use musical instruments in worship because there is no clear New Testament warrant to do so. A branch of the Churches of Christ, helpfully often distinguished in their very name as non-instrumental, for example, takes that view. In general, however, even churches that affirm the regulative principle, such as Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists, do not apply it so strictly. In the end, most of these denominations would decide that, although the regular principle is valid, evoking it to forbid the celebration of Christmas was an example of an unduly strict application, just like evoking it to remove all instruments from worship is. Some Puritans in the 17th century were so opposed to Christmas that they would try to thwart any holiday celebrating by declaring December 25th to be a fast day. That effort, however, shows that their supposed biblical objection was not a valid one, for if the church cannot declare a feast day on December 25th because the Bible does not name that date, then the same logic would say the church cannot declare a fast day on December 25th because the Bible does not name that date. Or to put it positively, if the church is free to declare a fast on any day that seems good to it, then the church is also free to declare a feast or celebration on any day that seems good to it. Moreover, as I've said, many Protestants have never accepted the regulative principle as a valid principle at all. They follow instead the normative principle, which says that if scripture does not forbid something, then the church is free to decide that it would be a profitable addition to its worship and make use of it. Martin Luther himself followed the normative principle. If you asked Luther, where in the New Testament does it tell us to use musical instruments in worship, he would have replied, Where in the New Testament does it say that we are forbidden to use musical instruments in worship? If the Bible doesn't forbid it, then we are free to decide whether or not it will be a helpful, wholesome, and edifying practice to do it. Luther was convinced that remembering Christ's birth every year on December 25th was an edifying practice that was good for Christian discipleship. Indeed, Martin Luther heartily loved Christmas. He preached numerous Christmas sermons that have survived and also penned Christmas carols. Uh, here is a passage from one of Luther's Christmas sermons. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Why not in a cradle, on a bench? Because they had no cradle, bench, table, board, nor anything, whatever, except the manger of the oxen. That was the first throne of this king. There in a stable, without man or maid, lay the creator of the world. And there was the maid of uh, young years bringing forth her firstborn without fire or pain, a sight for tears. What Mary and Joseph did next, nobody knows. (laughs) They must have marveled that this child was the son of God. He was also a real human being. Those who say that Mary was not a real mother lose all the joy. He was a true baby with flesh, blood, hands, and legs. He slept, cried, and did everything else that a baby does only without sin. I have preached a different Christmas sermon from a different biblical passage or one pulling out different points to expound from the same passage in my home church for over 15 years now. It's a game that my senior pastor plays with me that I can never repeat a theme that I have to come up with a new one uh, every year. I could keep going on for as many years and decades as God will give me because scripture is inexhaustible and the gospel is inexhaustible. And that's the story of Christ's birth and the doctrine of the incarnation as given in these various texts of scripture, are themes in which we can return to with great spiritual profit year after year after year for as long as we live. My own view is that Christmas is is extra biblical, not unbiblical. Extra biblical just means that it is based on choices that godly people are free to make rather than on details specifically given in, in the Bible. It is not unbiblical in the sense of something that is wrong to do if you want to be faithful to the Bible. Much of church life is extra biblical in this way. If asked where in the New Testament does it say that there should be a Wednesday night prayer meeting, the answer is simply the Bible calls us to pray and it is perfectly fine for us to decide that Wednesday evenings is a desirable time to do it. The same is true of Christmas. The Bible calls us to teach our children and new believers the doctrine of the incarnation and the biblical story of Christ's nativity and to rejoice in these great truths. And if December 25th is deemed to be a desirable time to do it, then we are free to do it then. Given that even the federal government makes provision for us to have a day off so that we can celebrate on December 25th, it would seem perverse to refuse to take advantage of this traditional day for remembering the birth of Jesus. In fact, I want to take you to a text in the Bible that is not in any way associated with Christmas to help you think about why uh, Christmas is not unbiblical. So this is the one for if you wanna look up in a Bible, it is uh, Esther uh, chapter nine. If you have the the, the Bibles that were put out, it's page 413. You can just go right there, page 413. Um, Esther nine, we're gonna do 20 through 28 and Evie is gonna read it for us.
2: Chapter nine, um, verses 20 through 28. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent the letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Osiris, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. As the days went on, which the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month that had been turned for them from the sorrow into gladness and mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days sent for gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor, so that the Jews accepted what they had heard and started to do, and what Mordecai had written to them. From Haman the Agagite and son of Amiditha, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per, that is, to cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged in the gallows. Therefore, he called these days Purim, and after after the term Pur, therefore, because of all that was written in this letter of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly... obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor shall the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Thank you.
1: So you could uh, keep that open if you want to. I'm gonna kind of pull things out of that passage for a little bit. Are you worried that December 25th is not named in the Bible as the day on which we are to celebrate Christ's birth? If so, I am here to put your troubled conscience at ease. Good Christian men and women, rejoice. (laughs) What we see here in Esther chapter nine is that Mordecai originally had the idea for this sacred holiday, the Feast of Purim, and the others agreed. Here again are the last verses from the passage. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should without fail observe two days every year in the way prescribed at the appointed time. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. What I want you to notice is that according to the text, this is a completely man-made holiday. God does not tell them to do it. You may notice, uh, you may know, in fact, that God is never explicitly mentioned in the entire book of Esther. Mordecai and the Jews are not obeying a word from the Lord. They did not receive a message from an angel or a vision or a dream or a prophet. They just decided to create this sacred day and told all believers to observe it faithfully forevermore. In fact, Jesus himself would have observed the sacred days of Purim every year as part of the practice of his faith. Chapter eight seems to be smoothing over a problem that arose of customs in different regions regarding whether Purim should be celebrated on the 14th or the 15th day of the month of Edar. The genius solution to the problem devised in scripture is simply to declare both days a holiday. Uh, the historic wisdom of the church, this might be too far in for you, but the historic wisdom of the church is actually that December 25th is the first of the 12 days of the Christmas celebration. Most of us are not able to party as hard and as long as the church desires. <laughs> we give up and start with diets and New Year's resolutions, but the church invites you to hold off on your such disciplines and restrain until you reach uh, uh, January 6th. That's the, that's the true old way. Furthermore, this text in the book of Esther gives as a biblical model for how to keep gives us a biblical model for how to keep a sacred day such as Christmas. This is presented in verse 22. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Here's a list of four components of the biblical way to celebrate a sacred day. With feasting, The biblical way to celebrate a sacred day is with food and drink of better quality and of greater quantity than usual. Okay, I'm gonna write that down as a key key biblical tip. (laughs) With food and drink of better quality and greater quantity than usual. That's what a feast is, very biblical word. We are embodied beings. The Bible understands that the way to make a sacred truth a reality to us is for us to experience the delight in our bodies. Christians sometimes um, talk about Christmas being worldly because it involves indulgence. But the biblical model is that there is a time to fast and there is a time to feast. Earlier in the book of Esther, they called a fast because they were in a crisis. And once God delivered them, they called a feast. Feasting is a biblical way to celebrate. Many of us have traditions of foods which we only have or make during the holiday season. All kinds of things appear that we don't otherwise have. Eggnog, candy canes, Yule log cakes, and so on. I I do the cooking in our house, and I roast a a goose every year for Christmas. Never at any other time in the year. It takes a long, long time. Just if you ever want to try this yourself, I have to get up really early to put it in the oven in time for this to work. Uh, But we only do it once a year, um, and it, it is for Christmas. These holiday traditions are a way to signal that one is feasting, that something heightened and special is happening to our culinary experience. Again, this is a biblical way to celebrate. Number two, again, just following that list in Esther nine twenty-two with joy. Ecclesiastes makes it clear that there is a time to rejoice. Christmas is a set time for rejoicing. Even in a hard year, Even when many things have not gone our way, this is the right time to rejoice. It is a time when we remind ourselves of things we're celebrating and endeavor to feel the joy of them and to express that joy to others. We will get on um, to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol um, tomorrow, if you come back. Uh, But what I want to point out here um, is that part of what makes Ebenezer Scrooge so repulsive is not, that he is not only that he is a miser who treats others badly, it is that he lives a joyless life. He does not know how to rejoice. He eats meager, awful meals. Christmas comes but once a year, he is reminded, but he cannot find joy even on the one day of the year that is most set apart for rejoicing. Let us not allow our cares and worries and never-ending lists of things to do and sort out to rob us of our Christmas joy. Number three, again, it's the same list in that verse, with giving presents to one another. The one another in the text is emphasizing our social circle, our family and friends, the people that are part of our social lives. We give them gifts as an expression of our joy because it can help create joy in us and because it can bring joy to others. People find gift-giving... uh, giving Christmas presents a pressure sometimes because it can take time and effort, and it is not easy to get right. But it is thrilling to know that you understand someone well enough to have found a gift that is just right for them. I've, I, I I've, um, I just got in the mail a, a, uh, a silver denarius from the reign of Marcus Aurelius, for my son, I'm trusting he won't hear this lecture before, uh, before Christmas time, uh, yeah, I have just found out he's really interested in Roman coins, uh, and so I'm super excited about it. And that's, that's the joy, is I, I know, I'm confident he's gonna like it. Uh, and and the, the giving is that fun. But it's thrilling to know that you understand someone well enough to have found a gift that is just for them. Gift-giving is a way of making the people around us feel seen and known and appreciated. It is the opposite of taking them for granted. It says you are special to me and I want to take the time and effort to acknowledge that. The text mentions food in particular. The Hebrew word used has the connotation of delicacies or fine or choice foods. In other words, a particularly biblical thing to do to mark a sacred feast is to give people high-quality baked goods, okay? There's a Bible tip for you. (laughs) Number four in that list, with gifts to the poor. Jesus was particularly critical of well-off people who just exchange gifts with each other and host dinner parties for one another and don't find a way for their giving to flow out to people in greater need themselves and their own social circle. If it is all just a selfish little world, it might be called celebrating, but it is really soulless and joyless. Our own joys increase when we find ways to be generous to those who really need our help. Christmas is rightly a time to give donations to charities and to find ways to help out or bless people who are less well-off than we are. We tend to think of the commercialism and consumerism of Christmas, but we forget that Christmas is also the time of year when charities often raise the most money and are able to do the most good. Numerous charities have plans to help people specifically during the Christmas season. I've been a member of a church that focused its Christmas giving around Prison Fellowship's Angel Tree campaign, and another one that did so with the Samaritan Purse's Operation Christmas Child. My current church raises money every Christmas season to pay the school fees of children in Uganda. The Salvation Army, which is also a Christian denomination, is particularly known for raising money at Christmas time with its red kettles and for helping people in need out during the holiday season. Okay, we have made it to the second charge. Is Christmas really pagan? This charge is based on concerns that the celebration of Christmas is really a continuation of pagan celebrations or ways of celebrating, specifically that it is based in the pagan celebration of the winter solstice or other Roman pagan holidays from around that time of year, and that Christian symbols such as Christmas trees, mistletoe, and evergreens are actually pagan symbols and pagan ways of celebrating. The first thing to say about this is that it is an example of a logical fallacy which philosophers call the genetic fallacy. The fallacy that something is right or wrong because of its origins. Things change their meaning over time, and what they meant to someone else in the past does not determine what they mean to us now. We all know that words or gestures that were once innocent can become rude over time or vice versa. Again, what matters is what they mean to the people using them now we can think of examples of even for, uh, even for things with pagan origins. For instance, the name of the month of March was originally a reference to the Roman god Mars, and the day of the week Thursday was a reference to the Nordic god Thor. Yet it is simply not true that if I were to say to you, let's have lunch on the first Thursday in March, I would somehow be reverencing pagan gods. Such a claim would be to commit the genetic fallacy. The meaning of words or customs for us today is not determined by what they might have meant to someone else long ago. To observe that some people might have once lit a candle in winter to honor a pagan god does not mean that when I light a candle in winter, I am honoring a pagan god. I might be honoring Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who came into the darkness and whom the darkness could not overcome. Secondly, Whenever a new faith or ideology or way of life emerges, it inevitably expresses itself through the cultural resources at hand, which are therefore derived from pre-existing ones. This is so self-evident, it is hard even to imagine what the alternative might be. In other words, a clear, direct case of cultural borrowing does not necessarily tell us anything about something's meaning in its new context. Take, for instance, a holiday that we observe here in the United States, Independence Day or the 4th of July. An informed observer could notice innumerable cultural borrowings. For example, the use of red, white, and blue as the, natural color, as the national colors is obviously simply adopted from Great Britain. Hearing the song, America, my country tis of thee, one might immediately recognize the melody as that of the British national anthem. God save the queen. The fireworks might remind one of the celebrations of the British monarchy, famously evoked just a couple of decades before the American War of Independence in Handel's Music for the Royal Fireworks, 1749. Our observer might be baffled by the claim that serving apple pie, a very common traditional English dish, is somehow distinctly American, let alone imagining that the United States invented motherhood, as American as motherhood and apple pie. Again, what all these go to show is that Great Britain preceded the United States, and that new cultures arise by using the resources that are available to them. It would be absurd, however, to use these facts to claim that in their Fourth of July celebrations, Americans are somehow really honoring the British monarchy and expressing their loyalty to the British nation, and that if they wanted to be truly American, they would therefore have to forsake the red, white, and blue, and the apple pie, and all the rest. It is no less absurd to claim that when a Christian puts up a Christmas tree to remember the birth of Christ, that they are somehow really honoring pagan gods from the past. All such ways of reasoning are based on a fallacy. Thirdly, the genetic fallacy is even more ridiculous than usual in the case we are discussing because so many aspects of the celebration of Christmas are what the author Dorothy L. Sayers, and the anthropologist Mary Douglas and other scholars have referred to as natural symbols. Connections that are so obvious to make that they are likely to occur to many different cultures independently. No one has a copyright, for instance, on the symbolic significance of light coming into darkness. It certainly does not somehow belong to pagans celebrating the winter solstice. It belongs just as much to Jews celebrating Hanukkah, Christians celebrating Christmas, Hindus celebrating Diwali, and a wide range of other cultures and traditions from across time and around the world. Cultures across the globe and the centuries have marked time by the course of the sun and the moon. Solstices have marked time for peoples across the planet from time immemorial. However much their religions and cultures have differed from each other. Likewise, no one has proprietary claims over the religious, ritual, or cultural significance of the display of evergreen trees and plant decorations during winter. These are natural symbols. They speak of life even in a time of death, darkness, and decay. A common way to celebrate across the centuries and the globe has likewise been with feasting and gift-giving. None of these things belong to pagans. They belong to humanity. Fourthly, things that are said to be pagan are often no less rooted in the teaching and example given to us as Christians in the Old Testament. As the Bible reveals, the sacred festivals are often tied to solar and lunar cycles. Passover, for instance, to the spring equinox. That's how you date uh, Passover. Genesis 1.14 even declares that one of the very reasons why God created the sun and the moon was in order to mark out the sacred seasons. The same is true for using plants in celebrations. Moses himself established the sacred festival, the Feast of Ingathering which was the harvest festival in Judaism, and is. This is recorded, for instance, in the book of Numbers, chapter 29. Here is the account in the book of Nehemiah of the uh, the people beginning to celebrate the festival of ingathering again after the exile. And in the law they found it written how the Lord had given orders through Moses that the Israelites were to live in booths on the festival of the seventh month. On hearing this, they issued a proclamation throughout all their towns and throughout Jerusalem. Go to the hill country and bring in branches of olive, myrtle, palm, and evergreens to make booths as prescribed. How is the sacred festival of ingathering to be celebrated? City people and town folk go out into the countryside and gather evergreens and bring them back to set up shelter structures. Again, to claim that pagans also sometimes go out into the countryside and gather evergreens to celebrate their festivals does not somehow make a Jewish festival pagan, nor does it make a Christian festival pagan. Finally, it turns out that a lot of the claims regarding pagan connections to Christianity are probably not true. Some of them were even deliberately made up in modern times. As I have said, it is ridiculous to think of the winter solstice as inherently pagan. All ancient cultures marked time by the sun and the moon. In fact, we still mark time by the sun and the moon, uh, with the year being one cycle of the earth around the sun and a month being one cycle of the moon around the earth. In the ancient world, people were generally not literate. Many cultures uh, lacked any uh, written language. And thus the only way you could have a date for an annual festival was to agree on a day marked by the cycles of the sun and the moon. The reason why Christians decided on December 25th for Christmas is unclear. It just happens before things get written down uh, or the, those records survive for us. I know some very bright people who believe that it is the true date for Christ's birthday. And that this information was handed down from Mary to the Apostle John to later Christians. Although that is possible, I myself don't find think it is likely. I assume that Christians probably chose December 25th Uh, which was the date of the winter solstice in the Julian calendar for theological reasons. The winter solstice means that from that point on in the annual cycle, there is more and more light and less and less darkness. Christ has come. He is the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is the spiritual meaning for Christians of the winter solstice. We are also very used to celebrating something on a date that seems right for reasons other than historical accuracy. For the vast majority of years, Martin Luther King Jr. Day does not fall on his actual birthday. Although it is often referred to as President's Day, do you say President's Day in Alabama? We do, we do certainly in Illinois because Abraham Lincoln you know, is our home guy, so we, we like, to, like to think we're honoring him. But, our federal holiday in February is officially called Washington's Birthday. That's, that's actually the legal name of that holiday. Uh, yet it never falls on Washington's actual birthday.
0: <laughs>
1: even the Queen of Great Britain has an official birthday which is celebrated every year, which is not even in the same month as our true birthday. <laughs> in other words, we should be well used to the idea that something can be celebrated on a different day from the one of the historical event in Marx. Most of what passes for ancient pagan ritual and practices today are just modern inventions. If you go to the ancient site Stonehenge in England for a solstice, there will be all kinds of people in costumes and masks, with all kinds of staffs and torches, engaged in all kinds of rituals, which they want you to imagine is a continuation of ancient pagan practices. But they have just made it all up. Okay, go go YouTube it if you want to be entertained. They claim that Christians are doing things that are taken from the ancient uh, pagans, but even the modern pagans themselves aren't doing things taken from ancient pagans (laughs) because we don't know, we don't have the records of the rituals and the practices of ancient pagans. Everyone is almost always just guessing. All that Stonehenge tells you is that ancient people understood the cycle of the sun and created a meeting place that lined up with it. (laughs) Again, all human cultures whatever their beliefs, not least Judaism, have always paid attention to the cycle of the sun and the moon. All right, now I want to talk about Washington Irving, America's first celebrity author. He was born in Manhattan in 1783 and died in 1859. He is created with making creative writing a profession, of being the first fiction writer to make a living by his pen. He was also the first American writer to be popular in Europe as well as at home. Some of the terms he used are still popular today. He spoke of New York City as Gotham. He admitted the phrase, the almighty dollar. And some of his stories have gone deep into the American imagination, including Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Irving's writings about Christmas significantly shaped how people think about the holiday. For example, he is a key early source for the developing legend of Santa Claus. First published in 1809 and later added to, Irving wrote a history of New York from the beginning of the world to the end of the Dutch dynasty by Dietrich Knickerbocker. It is, in it, supposedly uh, presented traditional Dutch views, but actually added in material of his own creation. Irving depicted Santa Claus flying over the city in a wagon and climbing down chimneys to deliver presents. Though the book irritated the descendants of the Dutch colonists, the Knickerbocker history was read widely in the United States and Europe, making its author a famous man and adding details to the legend of St. Nicholas, as well as turning St. Nicholas into at least an honorary American. In 1820, Washington Irving published a collection of stories called The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon Gentlemen. It contained several stories that are about Christmas in England, which are written as if they are the eyewitness account of a traveler. There are two ways to write fiction. One way is with what is called an omniscient narrator. This means that the story can follow all the characters and tell you what they are doing even when they are alone. It can even tell you what they are thinking and feeling. The other way is for it to be an account by someone that is thus limited to what that narrator thinks and feels and witnesses and overhears. This latter way of writing fiction uh, particularly makes it seem like a true account. A pioneering novel was Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, and because it was written as if it was Crusoe's own account, uh, it made many, many readers mistake it for a true story these Christmas chapters by Washington Irving were written in that way, and therefore they often left an impression on people's minds that they were learning about people that actually exist, and things that actually were said, and did, and believed. These early chapters included an account in which the alleged author, Geoffrey Crayon, visits a manor hall in England where the squire is keeping up the old customs of Christmas. In other words, many people read it as a true account of what people do and think in regards to keeping an old-fashioned Christmas in England. Irving helped people to cherish Christmas and thus was part of the holiday's rise in prominence and importance in the 19th century. Here is an early passage uh, in these chapters. Of all the old festivals, however, that of Christmas awakens the strongest and most heartfelt associations. There is a tone of solemn and sacred feeling that blends with our conviviality and lifts the spirit to a state of hallowed and elevated enjoyment. The services are extremely tender and inspiring. They dwell on the beautiful story of the origin of our faith, and the pastoral scenes that accompany its announcement. To return, however, to the question we are exploring regarding the alleged paganism behind Christmas, here is a bit of Irving's account of their going to church on Christmas Day. On reaching the church porch, we found the parson rebuking the gray-headed sexton, basically like um, the kind of caretaker for the, for the church building would be a sexton, for having used mistletoe among the greens with, with which the church was decorated. It was, he observed, an unholy plant, profaned by having been used by the druids in their mystic ceremonies, and though it might be innocently employed in the festive ornaments of halls and kitchens, yet it had been deemed by the fathers of the church as unhallowed and totally unfit for sacred purposes. uh, Irving just totally made this up to try to make his novel more entertaining. In Christian thought, of course, there is no such thing as an unholy plant. There are no church fathers who condemn mistletoe or any ministers in Irving's day or before. In fact, we know that mistletoe was a standard expense item in church records uh, when it came to decorating the church for Christmas and had been for centuries before uh, Irving imagined some pagan concern about it. A similar thing has happened with the Christmas tree. In the 19th century, a German author, Johannes Marbach, asserted without any evidence that the Christmas tree was a custom that came from the ancient pagan Teutonic past. This was quickly picked up on by other authors. German nationalists, pushed the idea as they saw it as a way to make Christmas a distinctly German holiday and one that would unify the German peoples. Sometimes the true origins of things are the exact opposite of what is imagined. In Northumberland in England, there is a holiday season tradition called the uh, Allendale Fire Festival. It involves an outdoor procession with barrels of fire. People today are totally convinced that it is an ancient pagan rite that has been handed down from time immemorial. In truth, however, it is both modern and Christian. It arose in 1858 from the local Methodist church, (laughs) uh, um, included into its holiday uh, uh, services an all-night prayer meeting that would end with a procession. So the Methodist prayer meeting procession, and now in people's imagination, proves that there's like this ancient pagan ritual. In truth, scholars who have tried to trace the origin of the Christmas tree now usually find it in a distinctly Christian practice of the medieval period. During the Christmas season, the church would put on sacred mystery plays that told the biblical story of salvation history. These would begin with the account of the creation fall starting in the Garden of Eden. Thus, what the audience would see on the stage was a decorated tree representing the tree of life. Thus, Christmas became associated with decorated trees, and eventually people wanted to keep the decorated tree up as a decoration in the town, and then people started creating their own in their homes as well to add to the celebration. Uh, as I've been trying to show throughout this lecture, People like to insist, often on the basis of made-up evidence, that Christmas is built upon uh, paganism. But those same critics totally ignore the much more obvious and indisputable ways that Christmas is built upon Judaism. Yet the narrative of the Nativity of Christ in the New Testament is clearly influenced by the miraculous birth accounts of certain major figures in the Old Testament. Indeed, the parallels between Hannah giving birth to Samuel and Mary, giving birth to Jesus, extend all the way to the songs of the two mothers. Mary's Magnificat being noticeably influenced by Hannah's prayer, uh, 1 Samuel 2 and Luke 1. That is unquestionably a borrowing from the past. As has been noted already, Christians continue the Jewish practice of dating their major religious festivals based on the stations of the sun and the phases of the moon. And again, as we have seen, even some of the seemingly merely cultural, as opposed to overtly religious aspects of Christmas, likewise can be seen as distinctly derived from ancient Israel's approach to a sacred day. To quote Esther 9, again, a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Because Christians are generally quite comfortable with the Jewish roots of their faith, these connotations somehow become not worth pointing out to people as the critics are only looking for evidence that will seem to discredit Christian practices. So many of the words and phrases that are used to describe the Christmas season are wielded as indictments. Consumerism and commercialism are obvious examples. These words can express real critiques of real problems. Gift giving, however, is a way of fostering social bonds that has always existed across all human cultures And thus, it is bizarre indeed to try to make people uh, who wish to give presents feel ashamed simply for engaging in a beneficial and universal custom of social life. Last paragraph, you have made it. (laughs) Christmas is what you make of it. If you want to celebrate it as a Christian holiday that honors Jesus Christ, then you can. No one can rightly tell you that by celebrating Christmas, you are somehow inherently doing something unbiblical or pagan or worldly. Decorate a tree if you like, give gifts, have a feast, rejoice that a savior has been born, worship the Lord with gladness of heart. Good Christian men and women, rejoice. Thank you.
0: By my watch. We're we're almost to eight o'clock, and I, I told everybody we'd have ourselves out of here by eight o'clock. So, if we're gonna have a question and answer time tomorrow, uh, but Tim will stick around. If you want to answer, ask any individual uh, questions of him uh, for you to be able to have. I hope we'll come back tomorrow at nine o'clock uh... for the next lecture and uh... somebody has already asked me a question about santa claus i think that's it's coming it's coming it's coming in the next lecture um, and then uh... we're going to talk about the christmas carol tradition uh... and second, we may even sing a few uh... christmas carols so i'd encourage you to be able to come one of the things that we always try to have at our history conferences is a book table to provide you with good resources um, if you look back there, the book table looks a little sparse, and that's because COVID has trapped our packages of books <laughs> in Kentucky right now. I have no idea if uh, they'll arrive tomorrow morning or overnight. Sometimes I found packages on my door overnight, and so maybe maybe it will. But uh, and maybe Tim, you sabotage this. The only books that did arrive were yours, um, but actually uh, tim's are not normally regularly accessible uh, he's got a great book on george mcdonald uh, and that we have available in the back i just ordered a few so that if you would like to have tim sign one before you leave you'd be able to have that opportunity to do so they're eighteen dollars if you'd like to pick up one before you leave uh, please uh, just see me and i'll make sure that that we get that taken care of but let's close in the word of prayer lord we pray that everything that we have discussed tonight would honor you because Lord, as, as Tim has eloquently put, the focus should really be about the Lord Jesus Christ, about His coming into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we pray that uh, whatever way that we are celebrating this advent season, that Lord you are using that to draw us to worship the Lord Jesus all the more. We do pray, Lord, that you would you would keep us away from, from the things that would draw our thoughts and our minds away from Jesus. Uh, and that, Lord, we recognize that consumerism is an issue. Uh, But, Lord, we pray that we would celebrate in the right way, the way that would honor you. And so, Lord, may you receive all the glory. We bless everyone here tonight on their way home. Give them safe travels and welcome them back again tomorrow to be with your people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.